the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Can anything good come out of Isla Vista? We pray so. Here we are. <laughs> as, as I look around, uh, good heavens, is this not beautiful? Is this not a peaceful place? Is this not a beautiful day? A little bit of sprinkle, a little bit of sun breaking through. And here we are in a peaceful, beautiful place that the Lord has given to us. It's hard to comprehend as we sit here on this beautiful day, in this beautiful place, this place of peace, that there was a time in the life of the church where the very church itself became the battleground. In the year 726, the heretical emperor Leo declared that icons were idle and that they should be destroyed. Perhaps he did this under the influence of the rise of Islam in North Africa. Islam, which also says essentially the same thing, that icons are idols and that they should be destroyed. The very word iconoclast that we celebrate so much in our modern liberal time, the very word iconoclast means icon breaker, not something we would wish to celebrate. But think about this. Comprehend this if you can. Imagine this if you can for just a moment. If thugs were to burst into this service this morning and begin to break all of these windows to heaven, if they were to come into this holy place and begin to deface them, to tear them down, to burn them, and you'll have a vision of the time that preceded the triumph of orthodoxy. You'll have a vision of that time, that horrible time where madness ran wild even in the church. Many of the clergy and the faithful were martyred as they tried to protect the holy images. There was a young nun named Theodosia who stood up when the iconoclast came to one place and though she was just a teenager herself, she stood before those thugs and raised her hand as if to say, no, you cannot, you must stop. She stood there, and if you see the icon of Theodosia, which we really should have here, which they showed at the Getty exhibit some years ago, that hand now holds a martyr's cross. There were many martyrs from those times. These icons were not then, and they are not now, idols. Now, how do we comprehend icons? How is it that we approach these holy things? For me, when I began to encounter icons early on, when we put two of them on the wall, <laughs> two little tiny ones, and uh, we're told just to sort of uh, uh, put them up there and kind of see if they grow on you, see what they do. When I first saw them, one of the things that I thought to myself was that in many ways, these icons are the church's family album that has been opened up to show to all the children. These icons, in a sense, are the family album 
of centuries of life within the church. We kiss them in that sense, in the sense that they are family pictures. We kiss them as if I would, so often as I do, kiss the picture of my departed and sweet mother and my departed and sweet father. Kiss them and from time to time even speak of them, although that may look a little crazy to some of my friends at County Mental Health. But I do talk to them. I do speak to them. I do kiss them. We hold the departed in that way. Yet far beyond this, that's a lovely little thought there. That's a lovely little emotional thought. It is true, I believe. But yet it's not near far enough for us to fully understand the role of icons in this place. Far beyond those senses that tug at our heart. Far beyond that, these icons teach us that in the incarnation, the Son of God did really become the Son of Man, that he did really take on human stuff, that he took on the flesh that we bear for the sake of our salvation. He took on the visible, physical stuff, all that it means to be human, just as all of those others, our brothers and sisters gone before, who we see in the icons, bore physical, visible stuff. So he, too, took on visible, physical, human stuff for the sake of our salvation. And we must proclaim that. We must proclaim that in the face of all heresies. If somehow we could see Jesus with our physical eyes, and I believe we can today, if somehow, but just for the sake of argument, we could see him, if we could somehow touch him, if we could somehow kiss his hand, our connection to him would grow in ways that just thinking about him, talking about him, reading about him, discussing him in a Bible study. God loved Bible studies. We would, our connection to him would begin to grow from that touch, from that sight, in ways that the other things could not provide. The icons invite us every time we enter this place, every time we pass them by, the icons invite us to make that connection. They draw us. They draw us into communion with him in a way that words alone could not, in a way that thoughts alone could not. And any triumph of orthodoxy this day is about drawing near to God and dwelling in union with him. And the icons foster that very core mission of the kingdom of God. These icons are about heaven touching earth. The triumph of orthodoxy has often been compared to Jacob's ladder in the, in the hymnody and in, in the writings of the fathers. It is the opening up of heaven to earth 
just like was promised by Jesus to Nathaniel. This Nathaniel that we heard about in the Gospel today is one of my favorite characters in the Gospels because this interchange that's here is just lovely and, and has something in it that I think will relate to all who have longed for the coming of the Lord, all who have been in pain and reached for him in secret places. This Nathaniel had prayed long for the coming of the Messiah, and he had prayed without answer, it seemed. It was his custom, if we might fill in some of the details to the gospel, and I think that's a safe thing to do, it was his custom to pray in secret, not to pray in public, not to stand before the, the gate of the, the temple and to pray in public, but to pray in a secret place behind a fig tree. How many of you have a secret place where you have sought the Lord, where you have reached for him? He prayed in a place that he had probably known from his youth, probably right there in his own neighborhood. His prayers were fervent. And sometimes in the quiet of his prayers, it might have seemed to him that no one was listening. Because as he walked through the day, he would have looked around and found that the Roman enemy still ruled the city. Young people still died in the streets. The Messiah that he had prayed for had not come yet to set things aright. Where was the triumph of my faith? Where is the triumph of my faith? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever read the news or looked at the world and asked, where is, okay, here we are at a Sunday of the triumph of orthodoxy. Where is the triumph of orthodoxy? Where is it? Have you ever asked that in the secret place of your heart? I have. I confess. I have asked that. Where is the triumph of orthodoxy? Is it just an historical event? Or is it something that we may enter into today? Well, Nathaniel did this day. Nathaniel finished his prayers with tears, probably, and with an amen. And looking to see that no one had discovered the secret place where he went to pray, he walked into town. And on the way, he met his friend Philip, who grabbed the reluctant Nathaniel and compelled him to come and meet Jesus of Nazareth. And when this Jesus told Nathanael that he had seen him in that secret place, when this Jesus told Nathanael that he had seen him under the fig tree where no one else was, Nathanael knew at once that God had heard his prayers for only God could have seen him there. Only God could have heard him there. God did hear him there, and God was with him there. And now somehow, the very Son of God stands before him, not as an apparition, not as a notion for philosophers, not as a political construct, not as a, a work of art of some kind, but God stands before him in the flesh, 
just as God stood before the whole world in the flesh, just as we have an icon that proclaims that God stood before us in the flesh. The God who had heard him in secret now stands before him in the open. That sounds pretty triumphal to me. What the Lord promised to show Nathaniel and the, what the Lord promises to show each one of us, the Lord promises to show this to you. This is not just about Nathaniel. This is about you all. This is about me. He promises to show us the ladder that is the intersection of heaven and earth. If we turn back into Genesis and we meet the prophet Jacob on the road between Beersheba and Haran, we will find out just where this ladder is. Jacob went out from the well of the oath and he went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and he stayed there all night and he put his head on top of the stones and he lay down in a place to sleep. And he dreamed, have you ever dreamt? He dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood above it all and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. Do not fear. And further, behold, I am with you and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And here's the part I want to get to. Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. If any of you are asleep out there, I pray you would awake for a moment and know that the Lord is in this place. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And further he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. If you have slept this morning, you have slept before the gate of heaven. Awake. The gate is opened up to you. Don't miss it. The house of God is the gate of heaven. The Apostle Paul tells us this in the first letter of Timothy. The house of God is the church of the living God. The place where the ladder from the kingdom of heaven touches down is in the church. It is here. This is where the ladder from earth to heaven, it stands right here. And one may receive the one who comes down and in turn go up with him upon that ladder. Many of the Holy Fathers said that we not so much climb that ladder as many others said they that we climb it, but others said we fly up it. We fly up that ladder. How is it that we would fly up that ladder during the rigors of Lent? It doesn't seem much like we're flying up. It seems like we're climbing a very, very strict and uh, tall ladder. But having drawn near to him, having touched him, we will become more like him. And we might even begin to see his image in our neighbor, 
even our enemies. We might open our arms. We might learn to love. We might confess. We might forgive. We might resolve those things that weigh us down as we go up that ladder. It is this holy love that motivates the church up the ladder, this Lent. And it is an unforgiving lack of love that would hold us down. All of our Lord have mercies, and we could give a million of them. Uh, uh, Metropolitan Joseph often says millions and millions and millions of something that he wants to say there's a whole lot of. We could give millions and millions and millions of Lord have mercies, and yet those millions and millions of Lord have mercies will not substitute for a lack of mercy on our part. Once again, forgive me for quoting Garrison Keeler. We Christians are always asking to be forgiven for things that we wouldn't think of forgiving other people for. We may ask mercy for our own sins, but we need to give mercy for the sins of those around us. Love will lighten our load as we climb. The triumph of orthodoxy is not a military conquest. It is not even just the triumph about right doctrine about icons or anything else. It's not just the triumph of our point of view even though our point of view happens to be holy and orthodox. <laughs> it's not just about a triumph of that. It's about the triumph of mercy, of grace, of peace, of love within this community, which we carry forth to all the world, which we see in the face of his mother, which we see in his face, which we see in him with children, which we see in the face of all saints. It's about the triumph of that which we see and that which we touch, not just what we think. Wrap yourself around that, please, and touch today the triumph of orthodoxy. We may, may we see it in the face of Jesus. May we touch him just like Nathaniel did. And in that eternal moment, we greet the saints, and we, like young Theodosia, who stood and stopped the enemy, we will stand and embrace one another and perhaps even draw the enemy into this holy place in peace. And may all that be to the glory of God the Father, and that would be the triumph of orthodoxy.